0: Almighty God, as we come now to your word, we ask for the grace to understand. We ask that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that you would show us the truth of your word. And I ask, Lord, as your appointed pastor for this church, you grant me the grace and wisdom I need to preach your word in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to your blood-purchased sheep. In Christ's name, the great shepherd of the sheep, amen. If I were to ask you what is one of the most joyful words in your Bible, what would it be? Would you pick love? Salvation? Something fancy like justification? Peace? It all like some peace. I'm going to show you how quirky your pastor is here. One of my favorite words is therefore. I love the word therefore, particularly in the New Testament. Because that shows me, and I'll show you just in a bit... That that word, therefore, makes us secure. It puts us on a very solid ground before God. When we think of this passage in 1 Peter, as we continue with uh, preaching through 1 Peter, the therefore in verse 13 is so, so heartwarming if you just take a moment to think about what's gone on. Because what happens after verse 13 is Peter commands us via the Holy Spirit to be holy in all of our conduct. Well, let me ask you this. How was that going for you? Were you holy in all of your conduct this week? Every single thought that crossed your mind, was it holy? Every syllable that exited your lips, was it holy? Every action that you did, your hands, your eyes, your feet, anything, was it absolutely holy? I think we all say no. No. If that therefore wasn't there, what would we have? We would have to earn our way into God's good graces. We would have to be holy in order for him to accept us. Do you understand how terrifying that is? To realize that we serve a God who is absolutely holy, absolutely perfect, who can stand no evil, because that's what holiness is, we understand that God is perfect, that he is self-existent, that he created the worlds by the word of his power. But when we get to holiness, we wonder, what exactly does that mean? Holiness, very simply, means that God hates evil. And he cannot tolerate any evil in his presence whatsoever, not even a drop of it. A drop of cyanide in a glass of water There's still more water in the glass than cyanide, but the cyanide is nasty stuff. I don't think you'd drink it if you knew that there was a drop of it in there. God can tolerate no evil whatsoever. Not one small, tiny sin. And what we think are tiny sins are things that put our Lord on the cross. So, if that therefore wasn't there, and the standard for us to enter into God's presence was our holy conduct... I ask you again, how would any of us actually fare in that encounter? Very poorly, James, the half-brother of our Lord, says we all stumble in many ways. Every single human being that has ever lived, besides Christ, and He was fully human, every single be- human being that has ever lived, if God were to demand of them holy perfection in every thought, word, and deed, complete obedience to his law, in every thought, word, and deed, if that was the basis for us being accepted into his presence, every single person who has ever walked this earth would be cast out into utter darkness, ripped into and given their portion with the hypocrites, as our Lord said in that end times discourse. But that therefore, that therefore makes all of that go away. Because what Peter has done in the preceding verses is he's told us all these great things that God has done for us first. Take a look, just by way of review, at this fantastic verse in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's beautiful. And the verse before that, in verse 2, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. See, all those things precede that therefore. Peter starts by telling us who God is and what He has done for us, and then he tells us therefore. And the way it works in a household is this. Hey kids, I've done this, that. I've done this and that, and by the way, I've done it for 15 years. Therefore, could you please just take out the trash? Right? I've done all these grand things for you. Please just pick up your room. And I'm not picking on the younglings here. Okay? It goes for us as well, as adults. People do nice things for us continually, over and over and over again. And then we don't repay them with, with even a thank you. What does that say? It says we're in grades that we're not really understanding of what that person has actually done. We don't really understand. Because if we did understand, we would reciprocate the behavior. What happens with parents and children? You don't really understand what your parents do for you. It's Father's Day, so I'll throw something in there. You don't really understand what your father's done to you, done for you. Until so you get a little older and you start to realize, wow, that must have been hard. Wow, it couldn't have been fun. He worked two jobs. That wasn't fun. I suppose it wasn't fun that he, had, he worked 60 hours a week you know, so that we could have food on the table. I guess that wasn't fun now that I'm working 50. It's not until you actually step into that adult role that you realize all that the, a father has done for you. Now let me ask you this in the spiritual realm. If we understood what the Father has actually done for us, what would our response be? I should say, what should our response be? It should be holy living. And that's what Peter calls us to. Because God is holy, we must have holy lives. And because He saved us from unrighteousness, and He saved us from an unholy life, we must be holy as well, in all our conduct. This therefore... That therefore, one of my favorite words, certainly one of my favorite words in the epistles, Paul does the same thing. He tells us usually who we are in Christ, and then he tells us how to respond. And that's so important. Because too many people, even those who are Christians, think that they need to work themselves into God's good graces. And that's a surefire way to burn yourself out. To set yourself up to get hit. With a gigantic boulder that will never be lifted. Because you realize at the end of every day, I blew it. I have to confess my sins again. And even if you're really absent minded and you don't think about it all during the week, when you come to church on Sunday, your pastor's going to remind you that it's time to confess your sins. And you're going to get hit and you're like, man, the whole week I blew it. I wonder if God accepts me. He does. He does. He asks for holiness and conduct as a response to the grace that he has already given us. There's a big difference in the way we view it. It's a thank offering, if you'd like, in response to what he has done for us. We don't act in a holy fashion. We do not seek to obey his law in order to gain his favor, because that is impossible. But Jesus, praise God, fully God and fully man, Obey God's law in its absolute minute detail. He fulfilled the law for us. And all of those good deeds have been transferred to us. And now, as a result, our hearts should be filled with gratitude. But they're not. And it's a great quandary to me as a human being. It's a great quandary to me as a man. And it's a great quandary to me as a pastor why all of our hearts, mine included, don't just overflow with gratitude towards God. The only answer, theologically, is that there's indwelling sin still in us. The sin still creaks to us. It's as if we were old castles in a a refurbishing process. And it's like, oh, there's another piece of ivy I've got to burn. I've got to take that ivy and kill it. There's another crack in the foundation. I'd have to fix that. can never get it perfect. Always seems as if there's a project to do around the house, isn't there? There's always something else to do. There's always another corner that you have to dust or clean or tidy up. Another window that has smudges on it. That's the way it is. We live in a world where we're positionally clean, but the world and our own conduct just dirties us up. But thank heavens, that therefore is there first. So what does Peter tell us to do? Interesting language. Therefore, gird up the the loins of your mind. Be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When's the last time you told somebody, gird up the loins of your mind? It's kind of an archaic phrase. You just don't hear it. The people who first heard this would have understood what he meant. They didn't wear suits. They didn't have jeans. They they probably had belts, but they certainly weren't the type of belts that you could buy at Sears. They'd have to pull up their pants. They'd have to pull up their garments and and tidy up. You've done that. out working in the yard, your shirt gets untucked. I'm talking to the men mostly here. Not that women don't work in the yard, but your shirt gets untucked. What do you do? gets uncomfortable. You re-tuck it in, pull up your pants, right? Pull them up, maybe tighten up the belt a notch, maybe loosen it a notch, and get comfortable and get ready with the shovel. That's what Peter is telling us to do. This is the imagery. Gird up the loins of our minds. This is something that, I keep saying this, modern American Christians have completely forgotten about, that our covenantal relationship with God is not a matter of emotional pump. It's not. Even though emotions are good and important. But that's not the basis of our Christian life. Because you don't have any idea what your feelings are going to be like in two hours. You have no idea. If you get a flat tire on the way home, and I'm not hoping any of you do, and it starts to really rain, I promise you that your spirits will take a turn and you're going to sigh. And if you got dressed up for church and you realize you've got to go out and do something with that tire, you're not going to feel real well. It's just not going to be a fun activity. But with your mind, you can't control your mind. You can't control your thoughts. Why? Because Paul tells us in Corinthians that we have the mind of Christ. You have the mind of Christ. You can think Christ's thoughts after him. So Peter is telling us, gird up the loins of our mind. In other words, what he's saying is, Buck up, get ready, and start thinking clearly. I need you to understand that in order to live a holy life, you have to first think in your mind, what is holiness? You have to first think in your mind, who is this God that I'm dealing with? Your emotions are going to run out of gas. Your mind will get tired as well. But your thoughts are something you have much more control over. And by the way, as a side lesson, your thoughts control your feelings. You can't feel bad about something unless you actually think bad thoughts about it. You've noticed that at work, something will happen, and there's that perpetual bumblebee in the office who's just always happy and can always just say, "Oh well, oh well, we'll just have to just have to push on." And then there's the other person who's like, "Eeyore," it's just like, "Oh no, not again." It's because they're they're viewing it different. They're thinking about it different. One is looking at it as a, just a a chore. I've got to deal with this. The other one is looking at it as a challenge. Well, it's just something we have to deal with. We live in an imperfect world. Things go wrong. If we live in an imperfect world and we understand that, then we will not demand absolute perfection from ourselves or from our spouses, from our children, from our students, from your pastor, or to the congregation. You will accept that people will stumble. It's not an excuse, but it is an explanation. So how do we gird up the loins of our minds? First step is right here. You know that you have to do it. It's saying that it's going to be hard work. When when you're in the ancient world and you pulled up your garments and, and got ready, remember, that was probably the only garment you had. They didn't have closets full of clothes. Maybe one, maybe two. They'd have like summer clothes and winter clothes. They'd have to pull them up. They'd have to be careful with them. Because if you messed them up, you couldn't just go to Pennies and buy something else. You have to gird up the loins of your mind. You do that through proper thinking. One of the simple ways of doing it is, again, careful Bible study. Systematic Bible study. Even if you just do it five minutes a day, over the, if you do five minutes a day over the course of ten years, it will add up. You read it slowly, you digest it, it will add up. You don't have to read the whole Bible in a day. You don't have to read the whole Bible in a year. Five minutes a day, ten minutes a day. Everybody can do that. Five minutes of prayer. Now we're looking at 15 minutes total out of 24 hours. Over the course of 10 or 15 years, that adds up. It adds up and it it will refurbish your mind. It will strengthen your mind. Be sober. This is not talking about just don't be drunk. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about having a sober outlook of life. When someone is drunk, when someone is not sober, they stumble around if they're very drunk. The book of Proverbs talks about that. The drunkard who wakes up with red eyes and says, give me another drink. Someone who's sober-minded is not someone who is necessarily just not a drunkard. It's someone who is thinking clearly who can soberly assess a situation, say, here's what it is, these are the options, and what do we do, particularly in regard to making a moral decision. And every decision you make is basically moral. You don't think buying a car is a moral decision? How much money are you going to spend? Is that a moral decision? Yes, it is. We may not think it is. What about clothes? What about food? Every penny you spend is a moral decision. Oh, it's only five bucks. Really? Okay. It's not just five bucks to God, it's five bucks that He's loaned you and He wants you to use it properly. I and mean, if we look at our lives, we'll probably all agree that we probably have more, more stuff than we probably can ever dream of using in one, one year, much less a lifetime. Be sober. Furthermore, rest your hope fully, the word fully is important, upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, this is part and parcel with girding at the loins of your mind, thinking clearly and being sober. That when things go bad, and remember the people who first listened to this epistle were under persecution. They had great problems, problems the likes of which we have not seen yet in our life. to rest fully upon the grace that is coming on the great and final day. That is what we need. That is what you need to do in order to be sober-minded in the biblical view. To not get tied to this world because, as Peter said in the early verses of the first chapter, we're pilgrims in this world. That's the key. So let me ask you this. Just this week, and certainly not going to ask for hands, did you at all think about the grace that was going to happen on that final day. Let me give you a little homework. I want you to go home. you am going to go home. I'm going to go into your house. Yep, I've been in all your houses. They're nice houses. They're nice houses. God's given us nice houses. Nope. Nope, I haven't been in everyone's home. But I've been in 99.9% of all your homes. They're nice. I want you to go there. I want you to look at it. I'm not going to ask you to thank God for it because you're going to have to do that anyway. I want you to think about the glory of the mansions of heaven in comparison to what you have now. And ask yourself, wow, if this is nice, and it is nice, I wonder what the dwelling that Christ has promised that he's building for me, I wonder what that one's going to look like. I wonder what that's going to look like. Because Jesus says, I go away. It's good that I go away because I prepare a place for you. That idea of mansions in heaven, it's, it's not a fairy tale. It comes right from the mouth of Christ. So go home and look at your house. And then just ponder for a moment, what will heaven look like? And if you really want to do some extracurricular work, you can you know feel your body. You know Creaky bones, crack your knuckles, and feel yourself getting stiff, You, those of you who are my age, around my age. And wonder, what is that heavenly body going to feel like? What's it going to feel like to not have even the possibility of sickness? To not have the possibility of a headache, or allergies, or any physical bothering whatsoever. What will that feel like? You won't be able to figure it out, but it will be something to look forward to, and Peter is telling us to set our hope fully on that. You see, to be sober-minded is not to set your hope on earthly things. To be sober-minded is to set your mind on heavenly things, because the things of this earth are going to rot and fade away. If the Lord tarries and does not return for another 500 years, I don't care how Nice your car is now. You know, I drove a Rolls Royce once. They're beautiful cars. In 500 years, those Rolls Royces, if left in the elements, will be nothing more than rust heaps. The metal is going to disintegrate. It's going to fall into the ground. Even if it's a $100,000 car, $200,000 car. Your homes that you live in, If the Lord tarries for 500 years, what do you think they're going to look like in 500 years? You're going to be gone. Who knows who's going to be cleaning the windows? You have no idea. None of us have any idea. All you have to do is look at ancient ruins in the ancient world, the great castles of of Europe, and realize, how that was a mansion at one time, and now it's a tourist spot filled with rodents and ivy. You know, you just go and look at it and say, wow, this is a nice building 600 years ago. Not going to live in it now. There's no time in heaven. Nothing rots. There's no time in heaven. Nothing goes out of style. Then he tells us to be obedient. As obedient children, we're not to conform ourselves to the former lusts as in our ignorance. So I'm going to ask you. Are you an obedient child? Obedience is easily measured. The law of God. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The only way you can tell if you're being obedient is if you're obeying the law of God. It's not hard to do. If you're batting 500, 50%, you're doing very, very well. All right? This calls for, again, sober-mindedness, to examine your life on at least a daily basis. Just examine yourself and say, well, how's my thought life? Oh, lousy. Maybe I should buck up a little bit on that. You know what your sins are. You know what your bad habits are. And if they're bad habits, guess what? They're probably going to be sinful. Because you wouldn't call them bad habits if they weren't. You know what your sins are. And here's a surprise. They're not that unique. God's seen them before. There's millions of people who are doing them. People right here today are doing the same things. They're not new. Add up your life according to the law of God and just say, okay, where do I need to be more sober-minded in my behavior? Where can my obedience be more perfect? Yeah, that's a good word complete? Where can my obedience to the Father for doing all these great things for me be more genuine? You see, we're supposed to obey the law of God not out of fear, not out of cold, naked fear, but out of thanks for what He's done. He saved your soul from eternal destruction. What, what, what can we do in response? How could we say thank you? You can't say thank you enough. All he asks is that you obey him. And here's the beauty of it. By thanking him through obedience, our lives actually become better. I'm going to give you a quick rule to really feel lousy about yourself. You have to pay attention here, because some of you like to do this. Go out. I have to be careful how I phrase this. If. If. It's a, it's a hypothetical. If you really wanted to feel lousy, go out and do something that's incredibly unholy. Go out and intentionally break God's law, and see how you feel. It'll wreck your soul. You know that. When you do something or you think something that you know you're not supposed to do or think, how do you feel? And that lousy feeling is a God sent. It's like the nerves on your fingertips. If you didn't have those nerves on your fingertips, you could touch touch a hot stove and you just stand there and sear your flesh. Your conscience has been resurged by the Holy Spirit so when you break God's law, you feel lousy about it. When you feel lousy about breaking God's law, you should thank Him because that's a good sign. That's a sign that you're in.